Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 17. If you're listening to the podcast the day it releases, there's a group of NASA researchers on the lava terrains of Hawaii at this very moment conducting field work under simulated Mars mission constraints to practice what it would really be like doing science on the Red Planet. Today's guest is Darlene Lim, the principal investigator for the Biologic Analog Science Associated with Lava Terrains Project, cleverly named Basalt. We chatted with Darlene before she left to Hawaii to give us a preview of the demonstration and talk about their earlier demonstration in Idaho. We'll have a feature up on nasa.gov ames shortly about the project, in addition to a podcast audio version. Without any delay, here is Darlene Lim. So, Darlene, welcome. Thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what brought you to NASA? What brought you to Silicon Valley? How did you get here? Yeah, sure. So, I'm originally from Canada. Oh, wow. And I grew up in a place that was very, very cold. And then as <laughs> soon as I could, I started heading south and just nice. kept kind of going. <laughs> and so, um, but, you know, as part of my journey, I realized that I'm actually a scientist. That's my background. I'm, okay. a, I'm a limnologist, which is kind of funny because my last name is Lim. And so mm. people think I study my family, but I don't. What is a limnologist? A, a limnologist is somebody who studies freshwater systems. Okay. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in the Arctic doing that work when I was in graduate school. And then through that process, studying life in these extreme environments, met up with wow. different you know, NASA researchers. And one of them happened to be Chris McKay. And, okay, um, who's so here at Ames as well. Who's here at Ames. And then towards the end of my graduate school, he said, you know, hey, you should think about coming to Ames because we have a lot of interests that are that are, you know, kind of in coordination with each other. And oh, wow. he also knew I had this very, you know, quiet but enthusiastic <laughs> interest in human space exploration. So there's no there's really, really no, yeah. And how does the, the interest in human space exploration fall into like freshwater systems? I know. It's it seems weird, but it is connected. <laughs> and so you know, to even back up further, when I was younger, my parents yeah. were immigrants to Canada and they had to work all the time. So you know, okay. I had to let myself in and then I wasn't supposed to watch TV but I totally did. Well of course. Of course, right? And um, Sesame Street. <laughs> or, or, or yeah, or other things. <laughs> but um one one of the wonderful programs that were that was uh, on TV when I was growing up are the Jacques Cousteau specials. Oh wow! And okay. you know, just watching those, it really imbued me with this interest uh -huh. in exploring and not being, um, you know, removed from that process, but being involved in that process. And so I didn't realize that it was going to stay with me my whole life, but yeah. it really did. It kind of sparked and the interest in like STEM and just science in general. It, I it think. did. Yeah. And and so when I was younger, I know that you know, at one point I had this interest in being the airline stewardess because I thought they flew the airplanes, but <laughs> nice. you know, it turns out they don't, of course. But like, um, that was a sad day when I figured that one out. But like but what I knew is that I wanted to explore and that okay. came from the Jacques Cousteau specials. It was just a thing I wanted to do. Yeah, just kind of permeated in your brain. Exactly. Like, and we, we camped a lot. I grew up in Alberta. Okay. Um, just a lot of outdoor things. And so when this opportunity came up to come to NASA and specifically NASA Ames, it was it was like, yeah, of course, like that sounds good. So I applied to be a postdoc through the uh, NASA okay. postdoctoral um, program. And that worked out, which is, you know, awesome. And then since then, I've transitioned to become a, a Bay Area Environmental Research Institute um, scientist who sits at NASA Ames. So I work here, okay. um, but I'm through Bayer. And, um, you know, it's, it's fantastic because from my perspective, there really is no better place to be if you are interested in science and exploration. And exploration yeah. that's, that's NASA. And so it was a very natural transition. Um, and, and, you know, I can connect all the dots when I look back through time now as to why I ended up here. 
Wow. So when you first came over, was it, did it specialize with the, with the limology, with the, with, was focusing on freshwater studies? It did. Or how did, yeah, how did that fit in? So you're right. When I came over here, so, um, you know, I had been working on these extreme environment, uh, freshwater systems in the Arctic. Okay. um, And also did a little work in the Antarctic. And so when I came here, Chris said to me, hey, there's this very fantastic lake in Canada, which has microbialites growing in them. Microbialites are rocks that are built by microbes. And these are unusual because they are, you know, prolific in the rock record, about two and a half billion years ago, okay. up to about 500 million years ago. And then there are modern examples of these rocks um, in more extreme environments. Mm-hmm. But this lake in Canada, Pavilion Lake, was you know, fascinating in an extreme sense because it wasn't that extreme. In, and yet okay. it had a lot of these microbialites. So it was kind of weird from that standpoint. So there was a lake and there has a connection to understanding life in extreme environments. And so I went there and on, you know, the first project was to just do a very science-focused characterization of this interesting limnological environment. But wow. then what we realized is that there were so many different inherent complexities with understanding this very vast system of the lakes. like. Six yeah. kilometers. It goes down to um, two hundred over two hundred feet, Whoa. and part of the whole endeavor of exploring this lake would require divers. And then okay. we eventually realized, hey, it might also require some ROV ROV work, um, remotely operated vehicles. So, okay. so human. So suddenly it's it's joint human robotic and yeah, you know, you're sending missions. probes down to exactly. Kind of so explore. suddenly you're like, gee, that's very flight like. And then and then you know eventually we realized that one wonderful way to be able to map the lake would be to put these single person submersibles in the lake. Okay. So, so imagine like submersible is basically a submarine that you have yeah. to launch and recover. Okay. And there are these cool ones that were about six feet by six feet, two feet, by two meters okay. or plus and two meters. So very small, very compact. And you put a person inside. Really? And they're very easy to learn how to how to operate. Okay. It takes a while to get good at it, but you can pretty <laughs> much like a car, you can get in and drive it. So suddenly there was um, an opportunity and funding in place at that point to... Um, put there were, as yeah. an initial crew of six of us that got got trained on operating these submersibles, and we then started to um, map the lake. And you know we were in there in the moment. It was incredible. Is, is there also like instrumentation on this? Thing? Are they like is. not just cameras, but I'm, I'm guessing some sort of radar or something to help you map it out. Right. And so there, um, there's a sonar system a system on board, but that's more for navigation. And okay. so what we ended up doing is a, a few different things. So we we mapped the lake using autonomous underwater vehicles, okay. which essentially gave us topographical or ba- you know bathymetric information on the lake bottom itself. Okay. And does that go out first? It's like a scout. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like send it out first and then, exactly. then follow so, up. So you know where I'm going. It's very yeah. it's very flight like. It's very much. Oh, Wow. in line with some, you know, for example, the vision of the journey to Mars and how you go out with robotic missions first to scout and establish. Well, in an extreme conditions, exactly. like that parallel of finding Earth in the craziest of places, or finding life in the craziest of places in right. Earth where we'd probably think, no way could even microbial life exist. I mean, you just keep finding it. It's you very... keep finding it. It's very interesting. And then, you know, the great thing about Pavilion as an example, working underwater, it's just a direct analogy to working in space. Okay. Not even deep space, just space in general, yeah. because you need life support when you're working there yes. as a human <laughs> and you, you can't stay there forever. Yeah. So as a consequence of having to, you know, driving forward with some science goals and then having to bring in some robotic and other, you know, bigger scale assets to support that, yeah. 
we realized, geez, this is a great human um, exploration analog for our transition into deep space. You know, whether that's uh, working, um, you know, on the moon and then eventually into uh, on asteroids and then yeah. the journey towards Mars. So we had astronauts suddenly join our crew. Not, really? you know, I, I say this suddenly. It looks when I look back, it seems like that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure in the moment it was just a logical flow yeah. of. All right, let's bring these people in. Yeah, it was all very deliberate and um, and working towards this objective of integrating science, real science, with real exploration objectives. And so, pavilion, uh, this Pavilion Lake Research Project spawned from that, okay. and it was this incredible opportunity to bring together what are historically sort of um, separated analog worlds. So, an analog. Mm -hmm in the way that I describe it as sort of a physical or an operational approximation of okay. some you know, destination in space. Okay. And so when I say physical, it's maybe like, you know, we work in the Antarctic or we work in Pavilion Lake or around in deserts because that gives us a wonderful approximation of say conditions on past Mars or early Mars. Uh -huh. And then working underwater, that's an, that's an operational okay. um, and, and, and physical in many ways approximation of say working in space. So. In this particular project, we brought yeah. those two worlds together, and they oh, wow. we didn't serve them separately, but rather together. Okay. And as a consequence, we could really drive out, you know, um, in terms of all of these operational concepts yeah. or engineering paradigms that have been developed for deep space operations. What actually is useful to a scientist? What is yeah. actually useful to a scientist on Mars, for example? Yeah, and those are questions which are completely outstanding. Yeah, it, well, and you don't really know almost until you're there, but like right. as much as you can practice or try to imagine it, then I'm sure in the process of doing these demonstrations, then you, things pop up. Things pop up and it's fascinating because um, right now human spaceflight is uh, done in a way, which is very much like you and I having this conversation. Yeah. There's no delay. Okay. So, yeah. so, you know, International Space Station or even on the moon, Comes. the delay was basically imperceptible. So. Okay. Um, it's command and control. So everybody knows what astronaut, you know, ABC is doing at any moment in time. And yeah. if there's a change in the plans or if there's a question, that can be worked in right real there. time. There's no delay. There's no delay. But when we move further and further, further, out, and further out, there is a delay which you cannot escape from. Well, and I, so like even for sunlight to get to Earth takes right, eight takes minutes. Time. Exactly. <laughs> and so you imagine you start getting further, especially, you know, past the moon, you know, towards Mars then there's a delay you're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to deal with it. You can't get over it. You know, it, even if it, even if we change the way that we transmit data, moving from radio waves to, you know, optical transmissions, it speeds up the data rate, but it doesn't get you around this issue of distance. Oh, wow. And so um, as a consequence of that, we started to do these simulations. I was going to say, like, you'd have to implement that yes. in the demonstrations you're doing now. Exactly. And so those demos have been done before, but in in a in many ways, in, a, um, in once again, these kind of contained analogs where it's like focused on the operations or the engineering um, aspects of the mission, but not necessarily when there is this other driver, which is you can't fail. You have to bring <laughs> back data. Yeah. You have to make discoveries that are pertinent to a graduate student or a senior researcher who's going to make their career on publishing to those rocks that are brought back by like two to four people. And so those people say on Mars that are mm -hmm. talk that that have questions like, should I sample this rock or this rock? Yeah. What is the mineralogy that I'm seeing? Does that mean that this has been altered or not? Uh -huh. 
What's the logic you're walking through? What's the logic? And they will be well-trained, but they won't be, say, the world's expert on um, methanogenesis, you know, in in (laughs) such and such environment. So they'll want to call a friend. Yes, phone a friend. (laughs) But that friend will be, say, you know, five to 20 minutes away, one-way delay. And then that friend has to think about the answer. And that may take another 20 minutes, and then, it's, then, then they got to send it back. And by that time, geez, they, they have sucked down all their life support. Yeah. So how do you manage through that? And so that's where we started to work through at Pavilion. And then now we've evolved into uh, that project just ended this year, and we started a new project last year. Yeah, I know you're working on a project called BASALT. Uh, that's a fancy NASA acronym. Of course. What exactly does BASALT stand for? Right, so BASALT stands for Biologic Analog Science Associated with Lava Terrain. I always have to look it up too. It's hilarious because <laughs> we just all call it basalt now. Okay, um, basalt but, works. But yeah, basalt is um, you know sort of that it's the the next evolution of what we started at the Pavilion Lake Research Project, and okay. uh, it's a joy. And so we're able to through the support of the P Star program, which is an, a NASA SMD program, um, which is led by um, Mary SMD Vortek, is the science. Uh, science mission director. Okay. Yep. And um, Sarah Noble and Mary Wojtek had that up. And, and so, you know, we were able to uh, properly support a really amazing exploration and operations research um, mm-hmm. a community that are participating in BASALT, as well as a science community. And for somebody who's like completely out of the loop on it, yeah. what exactly is it? It is a, It is a demonstration of what it could be like on Mars. And is it... It's here in the U.S. or where? Okay. Where? Where? How? Where does those demonstrations let's, take let's place? Let's totally back up to the beginning. So basalt. Basalt is um, an analog research project. Okay. And um, the the premise of it is that we do real science, non-simulated science, out okay. in the field, but under simulated Mars mission conditions. Okay. So our field sites are one is in Idaho at Craters of the Moon National Monument and Preserve, and wow. the other one is in the Hawaii Volcanoes um, National Park in the, on the Big Island around Kilauea. And so the two sites represent okay. to us um, very interesting volcanic environments which have a strong analogy or comparison to Mars. Mars has undergone a lot of volcanic activity. There uh, is basalt, you know, throughout the surface of Mars, which mm-hmm. is basalt is a type of volcanic rock. Yeah. But what we're curious about in these two um, settings, these two volcanic settings, is Idaho represents a sort of present day Mars. It's not a perfect okay. analog. There's never a perfect analog yeah, on of Earth. Course. But you can breathe the air. You can breathe the air. <laughs> exactly. There's exactly there's oxygen. And so um you know, but the thing about uh, Idaho is it's dormant, and okay. we know that it's a shield volcano. It's a volcano which is a very interesting environment, um, uh, in, in, and it's it's in the United States, so it's quite easy for us to access. And then there's another volcanic setting that we work to, which is in Hawaii, which is active. And so that's more representative of conditions in early Mars, where you have these um, what are called fumaroles, so these very hot kind of vent-like environments um, where there are some interesting minerals that are getting deposited mm-hmm. around these these vents. Now, what? Now, so the geology of these two areas has been, f- you know, fairly well characterized, p- particularly around, around Hawaii. But what has not necessarily been done, where the knowledge gap was, was trying to relate the geology of these okay. two volcanic settings to the type of um, microbial life that is associated with these with these two settings. Okay. And so we wanted to do that as a foundational piece yeah, to kinda. understanding 
are there differences between these two sites, one more active than the other? Yeah. One that has potentially undergone a longer period of what's called water rock interactions or alterations than the other. Okay. And then what is the net result? And so we had our first um, field program that yeah. took place in June. Okay. Um, and we're already seeing some amazing science results around the biology. And, and what does that look like? Is there like a master control and then you have a bunch of right. scientists kind of like walking through the field, collecting samples and they're talking back and forth or yeah no that's a great question like, so normally if we did yeah. this and it wasn't under these simulated mars mission conditions okay. you know we would just take a crew of 15 people a bunch of grad students and we'd stay out there, there and eat our lunch all day yes the difference is that the mars architectures that have been developed dictate that there are, are say two to four people that are out um, doing at any point in time, you know, doing a, a traverse, an EVA. Um, and so what we simulated is the case that you have two people that are out on the surface of Mars, and they are the ones that are um, in direct contact mm -hmm. with two other buddies, essentially, that are on Mars sitting in a control station, let's say a, you know, a, a pressurized hab. And those four people are interacting and they're um, looking at the timeline, looking at how much life support they have. So let's say it's four hours worth of life support. And then having to go out and conduct a traverse, which is in line with science objectives yeah. that have been dictated by a broader science team. And that science team is on Earth. Okay. And they are desperate for results. And that's the reality, actually, that we deal with because it's real science. They're okay. desperate for solid results so they can make discoveries, so they can publish papers, so they can test hypotheses. Okay. And those scientists sit 50 kilometers away from the action. Okay. And we, do, you, do you add the delay and all we that add stuff? the delay. So this, the scientists, um, you know, it's crazy because looking <laughs> back eight months ago, we came up with, I think, 468 technical require, requirements. Yeah. It had to be implemented to make this whole mission work. Okay. And this was driven by the science. It was driven by the operational research requirements, all sorts of things. Yeah. So when the scientists sit in the back room, they are linked. They're connected to what's going on, you know, in quotation marks on Mars that yeah. is out, night, out in the craters of the moon um, by voice. They can see, they can okay. hear what's going on, but it's on delay. They can see what's going on because we have video connection. We have still images that are coming back that are um, taken in very specific ways following very specific procedures. So the scientists can see the rocks. They can make okay. determinations of what they're seeing. We also have spectral data. So um, we have these oh. handheld instruments that give us um, a read on what type of minerals are associated okay. with rocks. And that data is flowing back as well it's as telemetry. So it, where are they? And you're not even necessarily deal, dealing with like, the, I mean, obviously you don't have to deal with the life support situations. It's right. almost like do a walkthrough, assuming all of those life support things are taken care of. But like, just how do you do that science? Exactly. What is your workflow? What are the procedures? And you, you know, what, what were some of the things that you guys learned from that first take? Right. So one very f um, interesting outcome in terms of the operations is lots yeah. of science stuff. But in ops, what we realized is that we might have to script different types of EVAs. So not just different place, you know, so not just script the EVAs for different places. So essentially okay. draw lines on a map and say, this is this EVA is one, <laughs> EVA two. Yeah. But in fact, for science, um, we may actually have to have different typing. So there may be an EVA that's specific to reconnaissance. And, okay. and within that, you know, the devil's in the details in that you may want to, depending on the type of instrument that you are going out with and, and the type of data that you're gonna send back to the science team, either yeah. wanna spend on that recon EVA a lot of time in say a five meter range. Okay. And in other circumstances, when you know you have really good and fast reproducibility of say mineralogic results, okay. you may want to go further. You may want to actually make that recon EVA cover, say, a kilometer worth yeah. of ground. And so okay. 
we would we would make that happen first, and then okay. we would have we would essentially enable um, you know time in the, yeah. in the program for the scientists to think about what they saw and then down select from there as to where yeah. they want the samples to be collected. So it sounds like real common sense, but it's yeah, and it is. It's it, it's easy after the fact right. to call things common sense, but I'm sure until you actually get practice at doing this like you don't know it until you do it and there's a real value of having of just learning as you go and figuring out exactly okay, maybe we're not going to be all uptight of location but the type of different stuff um so you guys are heading off to hawaii yes. in the near future yes what what kind of prep work goes into that and when is that all going to happen so we actually put in november 1st um but we okay. start on we go live on november 7th and we run for i think it's 10 full mission days till november 18th um, oh, wow. yeah uh and so the preparation is ongoing we just had a, a massive debrief and a kind of look forward to hawaii so what in terms of our process as a project yeah. we look at all of the lessons that we learned from um the idaho deployment yeah which was our as i mentioned our first time out and then we figure out how to apply those lessons to hawaii and so the 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 lessons that we learned come in all sorts of buckets to do with the, the science yeah. with, you know simple things like logistics and food to operations yeah. and and more of the research elements and and as well as the technical so we're applying all of those lessons and trying to figure out how to you know test for the, oh, wow. the readiness and so forth so there's a, a ton of work that's going into things at this point in time to get us ready to deploy to hawaii wow and then is there more deployments after Hawaii, like going into the next year? Yes. The project just keeps evolving and developing based on lessons learned? Exa well, exactly. And so yeah. there are, after Hawaii, we'll have another debrief. And then actually we're going to have two other um, key meetings. One of them will be around, it's a science summit, so a virtual mm -hmm. science summit, where we'll all get together, or I should say a research summit, and share the science and this the exploration. This is what we've learned. Yeah, this is what we've learned. Here are the papers that are going to get put into the, um, you know, the pipeline to get published and the conference, uh, you know, output. And then the other thing we're doing is we have to forward plan um, for the next couple of years. So this is okay. a four-year project. Okay. And um, after Hawaii, we will either have one or two more deployments, and the destination will get dictated by the science. At least that's our ideal at this point in time. There are, you know, of course, mm -hmm. other bureaucratic things that have to come into play. Of course, play, there always is. Always. But, um, <laughs> but the, the real uh, motivator will be the science. That's are, where we go. Are there other NASA centers that are also involved or other research institutions that are kind of like you guys are all working together or people doing different demonstrations that stand on their own as, right. as a parallel? or So as part of Basalt, it is a... Um, I look at it as a multidisciplinary endeavor, <laughs> and so um, you know it's and a also bit of everything. It, it's a, yeah. But the other thing is that it, we're very specific on like everybody has to come together and bring their expertise, yeah. but we have to look at problems as a collective, not in parallel with each other. Otherwise, okay. that sort of does a disservice to the philosophy of the project, which is to bring yeah. together science and exploration. So yes, we have I think about. 26 different institutions that are rec that are represented within this project. Oh wow. That's yeah. nice. And they range from, you know, they they're also there's one in Canada um, and um, there's one in the UK that uh, institution that's represented um, and then we've got I think three or four different NASA centers that are part of this basalt project and then as I mentioned academic institutions you know throughout the United States and then we we partner with another project that I'm actually deputy PI on which is okay. funded through the Survey Institute which is yeah, called yes. Finesse yeah and so um, you know that's a geology um, and sort of uh, 
a, a geology analog to um, to the moon, to asteroids, and so okay. forth. And they we also operate in that project in Idaho as well. But we share a lot of our resources and people and interests and so forth. And there's a, an exploration element to that project too. So um, it's it's a really wonderful collaborative effort that yeah. we've tried to establish and. You know, personally, I think these kinds of projects only work if people are working together, working together on solving a problem, not in parallel. And and they've okay. got to leave their egos at the door for it yeah. to work. So well, it's also it's like there's some things that everybody can come up with on their own, but when you put it together, not only do you have your individual ideas, there's ideas you come up with together that right. Those you are probably the would have never points. thought of on exactly. your own. Yeah. So if somebody's like really interested in basalt or wants to learn more about just some of the stuff you're working on best place to go just go to nasa.gov so yeah and we have a actually basalt website so i was probably okay. a couple ways that they can do it so they can google it's a long url so they can <laughs> google basalt and then nasa and it should be the first thing that pops up Excellent. Um, and the other thing that they can do is we actually have a twitter feed so they can check out a lot of the images from the idaho deployment there um and yeah so there's lots of different ways they can learn they can contact me directly oh. as well excellent so for anybody listening if you have more questions for darlene you want to get more into the weeds on basalt <laughs> um, especially after when we get all these images and start seeing what this looks like we're on twitter at nasa ames um we're also using the hashtag nasa silicon valley so anybody can kind of hit that link and figure you know send in questions and we can go back because we're going to want to touch base after Hawaii and, then as awesome. you, and as you lead up into some of these other deployments touch base and see see how it's going and see what you learned that'd be great right, thank you so much for coming over it was my pleasure this was so much fun thank you